Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation and the pillar for all of our hope as Christians. As we have been worshiping today in our prayers, in our songs, in our catechism time, in our call to worship, I pray that you have heard that message come through again and again. This resurrection of Lord Jesus that we celebrate today is the pillar and the foundation for our hope. He has begotten us again unto a living hope. With that, I want to turn to our text today. This morning's message comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting at verse 12 and going to verse 26. Now if Christ, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they that are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's, and his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Would you pray with me? 
Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture, may we consider the implications that the resurrection has for the life of every Christian. Not just our life as a church together, but our life in the world. Separate from the world, but in the world to be witnesses of those that have not this hope. Father, may this text grip us. May it encourage us. May it stir within us this hope that you have placed in us by the glorious resurrection of your son from the dead for our justification. We praise you in his name. Amen. I've titled this, mo this morning's sermon, An Apologetic for Hope. An Apologetic for Hope. So by way of preface, I think it's expedient for my part to define what I mean by an apologetic. And explain why it's necessary in light of this occasion that we remember today. Namely, the resurrection of our Lord Christ. Why it is necessary that I offer to you this apologetic. An apologetic is a formal defense of something, such as a theory, or in our case today, a religious doctrine. It is a defense. When I say this is an apologetic for hope, this is a defense for hope. That, so that you might be strengthened to be able to have a defense for the hope that lies within you. Jude 3 instructs us to earnestly contend for the faith. Amen. To earnestly contend for the Christian faith. Not just our faith, but the faith as a whole. The faith in general. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 instructs us to be on the ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Prayerfully this morning, I would give you, child of God, an apologetic by which to form your apologetic, your defense for the hope that lies within you. This morning is the Lord's Day morning. We do this every Sunday. Functionally, today is not altogether any different from last Sunday, right? right, right. We, we've had, yes, we have our resurrection service. We commemorate the resurrection. We had a baptism that we praised God for this morning. Amen. But functionally, this is no different than what we do Sunday in and Sunday out as the people of God. We gather as the saints of God to do what the saints of God do. To worship Christ in the in light of the gospel. In this instance, in the light of the gospel truth of his resurrection. But then again, that's not so different. Do we not worship every Sunday in light of the resurrection? Amen. Is that Amen. not the central focus behind our worship? Yes. It should be. This is Easter morn. We take special attention to the, to the resurrection of Christ today. And in this season leading up to it, there was 
Holy Week leading up to leading up to today. We had a good Friday service with uh, brothers and sisters from several churches, and it was a blessing to hear about the passion of Christ and his death in our stead. As we look forward to this morning when the stone was rolled away and the tomb was left buried. Sometime back, I preached a sermon from Galatians 2, dealing with the essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ, entitled simply, Gospel Essentials. My purpose in that sermon was to deal with two very clear essentials of the gospel that are laid out in Galatians chapter 2, namely, justification by faith and union with Christ. Today's message, however, is an absolute gospel essential that is even more basic, even more base level, even more definitional to the structure of your faith, the structure of my message, and the structure of your faith as you receive this message. If I could summarize the scope and the intent of my sermon today, it would be no resurrection, no hope. No resurrection, no hope. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrection from the dead in general, is the foundation for the hope of every man, woman, boy, and girl that is united to Jesus Christ by faith. No resurrection, no hope. Lee Strobel, anybody ever read or watched The Case for Christ? Uh, Lee Strobel, a Christian apologist and author of apologetic works such as The Case for Christ and In Defense of Jesus, started his journey studying the Christian faith differently from most of us, perhaps not so differently from all of us. Strobel was a devout atheist, admittedly a hedonist, one who lives solely for the purpose of indulging the flesh. Strobel had personal reasons for his denial of the existence of God. When Strobel's wife, Leslie, surrendered her life to Christ, she changed. When we surrender our life to Christ, we change. And it's a noticeable change. She changed and it bothered Lee. It bothered Strobel so much that he was prepared to use his life work as an investigative journalist to, in his own words, this is what Lee Strobel said, this is why he set out on this mission to study the resurrection, study the Christian faith. He said, he said his aim was to liberate his wife from her faith. If one desires to attack the credibility of the claims of Christianity, the fastest track to doing so, and the one taken by Lee Strobel in his desire to shake his wife's faith was to attack the central doctrine of the faith, Christ's resurrection from the dead. Strobel's documented stating, I knew that my debunking Christianity had to start with this bold, central claim that Jesus Christ died and came back to life. Strobel continues, 
The Christian faith rises or falls on that claim. It's the whole ball game. I had investigated lots of death in my career as a journalist, and none of those corpses ever regained life. Dead people don't just come back to life unless that person is truly the Son of God. Try as he would, Strobel lost his battle with unbelief. He lost his battle against the Christian faith and has surrendered his life to Christ and now uses his investigative work for a greater purpose, to help people see the hope they have in the resurrection of Christ, Amen. to help them see the truth behind the resurrection of Christ, that it goes beyond the claim it is verifiable, historical fact, indisputable as far as history is concerned. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The man Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Son of Man, rose from the dead. It is verifiable according to history. Skepticism of the claims of the resurrection, however, did not begin with an Illinois-born journalist. The Apostle Paul dealt with the denial of this cardinal truth within the church at Corinth. Paul wants himself a skeptic. Changed by the amazing grace of God, the encounter with the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, on the way to persecute the Christian church, had this experience. He was changed, and he gives documented evidence in his epistle, giving a defense for this historically verifiable event. In Lee Strobel's quest to dispel the resurrection of Christ, he encountered the veracity of the claims of the early church to the historicity of the resurrection. Strobel documents that the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, is said to have been a very early Christian creed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, the Apostle Paul writes, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And the last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. This is said to have been a very early Christian creed. It was a fragment of a creed that was being recited before it was recorded in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's said to date approximately just over two decades, which is most of my lifespan. I just turned 30. Well, I guess I say just turned 30. That's probably a lie. I'll be 31 in October. But most of my lifespan, it was that close to the resurrection of Christ. Or before, before it was written in here. That's how long this statement existed. Now, uh, 
1 Corinthians was written uh, about 55 AD, so roughly, what, 20, 22 years after the resurrection, 20, 22 to 25, depending on what date they give. But this creed was very early. This statement of faith about the resurrection, about the gospel, about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord was very early, and it has very early and wide attestation as being truth. By not only Christian historians, but atheist historians as well. This was in circulation among early Christians. Whether the atheists believe or not that it's true, it was early. It didn't come along later after Constantine and all that other. It came along within 20 years, 20 years of Christ's resurrection from the dead. It's a historically verifiable event that is the foundation for our hope. We're not guessing at this thing. Amen. We are not just... We're not throwing pennies in a well and hoping that this works out for us. We have evidence that Christ is risen from the dead. This creed is said by historians to have dated just months removed from the very date of Christ's appearance to these apostles. This was the message that the apostles preached. The gospel that the early church believed and gave their life for was encapsulated in this creedal statement. Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The early church gave their life for this statement. Amen. This is truth. It is verifiable truth. This is good news. This is good news. The Apostle Paul offers now his defense of the central truth claim in the face of opposition around the Corinthian church and from among them. Verse 12. If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection from the dead? This was emphatically the message that was preached by all the apostles. When Paul was preaching on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, they accused him of bringing a strange doctrine. That strange doctrine was that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. It was considered among these pagans in this area, among the schoolmen of that day, it was considered to be a wild, atrocious claim that dead men rise. This was the message of the apostles who were eyewitnesses to the event as recorded in verses 6 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. This was the proclamation that is to say that the, to ask the apostles the question, that I'm sure as Rebecca was getting ready for her baptism that Kevin had asked her, what is the gospel? What do you believe about Jesus? 
If you were to ask the apostle, what do you believe about Jesus? It would sound very much like 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. This was very much the faith of the early church and the faith of the martyrs who died for, for this truth that Christ Jesus rose from the dead. It is in fact so absolutely central to the gospel message that Paul can't seem to understand how these among the Corinthians have come to deny it. The thriving church described in the early portions of the book of Acts, see verse two or chapter two, verses forty-one through forty-seven, must have accepted this teaching as they were said to have uh, continued steadfastly in the doctrine of the apostles, which Paul says here includes the resurrection. Paul is seen here acting as an apologist, oftentimes defending the claims of the faith, whether it be from skepticism without or heresy within the church. The apologist must identify and clarify the danger that false teaching poses to the very structure of the faith. Paul spends the next few verses identifying and expanding upon the dangers of denying the bodily resurrection from the dead. For clarity's sake, it wasn't that they denied Christ's resurrection. They did, but that's evident. These skeptics, they weren't believers. They denied resurrection, period. These gainsayers were denying the possibility of a resurrection. They were saying this is impossible. There are grave theological implications from subscribing to such an abysmal worldview that men do not rise from the dead. So let us now, in light of this, look at the implications of denying a resurrection that Paul is defending here in this portion of Scripture. He says, people were denying this resurrection. So Paul comes back at them, as a good apologist does, with a sound, thought-through argument. When we hear an argument as Christians, such as there is no resurrection from the dead, we step back and we say, wait a minute. If there's no resurrection from the dead, do you realize what that means for you? Not, not what does that mean? I mean, let's leave aside the fact of Christ's resurrection for just a moment. But do you understand what you were saying? If you're saying there is no resurrection from the dead, do you understand what that means? Paul says, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. And we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified that God has raised Christ up. There's implications to what we believe. What we believe matters as Christians. This is a slogan that has been 
plastered on bumper stickers and uh, T-shirts and everything. And it's a good thing if uh, Orthodox Christian theology has seen a resurgence here in the last 15 years or so. We see this, uh, see this on bumper stickers and T-shirts and hoodies and what have you. Theology matters. Theology matters. Let's not allow that to become a vacuous sloganeering, but let's live it out. As a matter of fact, you will live it out. You will live what you believe. You will. What you believe about Christ will determine how you live. You will live like you believe. Your Christian life will be defined precisely by what it is that you believe about Christ and the claims of the Christian faith. Right. Our theology has consequences. How we think about Christ, how we think about the Christian faith, determines what we do. Yes. Every aspect of our life is determined about what we believe about Christ. I want to stop and think about that for just a moment. Just a minute. Think about it. And when I say everything, I don't mean everything that you do within the context of the church or everything that you do within the context of your devotional life. I mean every single thing you do every day says something about what you believe about Christ. From the way you wake up, from your morning routine, to the decisions you make throughout the day, to how you interact with those around you, believers and unbelievers alike, says something about what you believe about Christ. Amen. Our theology has consequences. Doctrine, Christian doctrine, will, infect, will affect your entire life. And it should. It should. And it inevitably will. It's not a question of if, but when and how will your doctrine how will you think about Christ affect what you do? It will affect the way you respond to affliction and persecution that Christ said would come upon you for his name's sake. Case in point, Paul's exhortation. If there is no resurrection, if that's what you believe, as some were saying around Corinth of the time, that has serious and dire consequences upon the entirety of the message of the gospel and directly upon your faith. These folks didn't believe in a bodily resurrection, didn't believe it was a possibility. Concerning their doctrine of existence and their theology of creation, perhaps also telling of their Christology or what they believed about Christ, these folks were in short, Gnostics. Gnostics believed that all flesh was inherently evil and that true freedom was to be free from the physical body. If you could be free from all that is physical, you would be free from sin. So, a bodily resurrection probably sounded pretty dumb to a pagan, pretty dumb to a Gnostic who thought that the body was inherently evil. Well, if they thought that much, then what? Then what? 
What did they have to say about Christ? They either had to say that Christ wasn't truly a man because Christ was God, Christ was God, then Christ was good. And if flesh is bad, then Jesus couldn't have came in the flesh. This is what John writes about in his epistle. There were people denying that God had came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Because they said flesh is bad, God couldn't have came in the flesh. Except for, except for John 1.14 tells us that the Word was made flesh. And before that it says the Word was God. So God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And 1 John says if you deny it, if you came in the flesh. If you deny that it came in the flesh. It's an antichrist teaching to say that all flesh is bad, so Christ couldn't have came in the flesh. It's antichrist teaching. It's the very teaching that John was writing against in his general epistle. These people were Gnostics. One pagan and Gnostic thinker, Celsus, he was a second century critic of Christianity, referred to the concept of bodily resurrection of the dead as revolting, impossible, and the hope of worms. The Christian blessed hope referred to by an atheistic materialist as a vile thing. Oh, what a low and abysmal worldview that is. How sad it is to live that way. And yet there are many who live that way. They do not have this hope. They will not have this hope. Because to them it is no hope at all. If I'm raised bodily, then I'm captive to this body. They have a skewed view of man and a skewed view of God. Paul is certainly clear about what it would mean for the life of the Christian. What the Christian's life would mean if there were no resurrection. He goes on. If there be no resurrection of the dead. Christ is not risen. Oh, what would this mean? What would this mean if Christ were not raised on the third day? I don't think I could continue to believe. I don't think I would believe. I've been asked before. If Christ wasn't risen, if Christ wasn't raised, if they could produce a body, if they could produce a bone fragment and say, this is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and he did not rise from the dead, he rotted in the grave. It would be foolish to believe the claims of Christianity. It would be absolutely foolish. But that hasn't happened, praise God. But to believe it, if that were the case, would go against every faculty of a sound mind that was given to us by the Father. It would go against reason and common sense. If Christ is not risen, my preaching to you today or last month or next month when I preach to you is a fool's errand. In vain. In vain. Useless. If Christ is not risen, then anything I say to you can be chalked up to foolishness. And you can ignore everything I say. If Christ is not raised, my preaching is in vain. Not only does this have implications for me, but it has implications for you, directly for you and your faith. Not only does Paul say that the proclamation of the gospel is useless, but your faith in Christ 
is useless. If Christ is not raised, my preaching is vanity, and your believing anything that I say is vanity if Christ is not raised. Amen. That is the point of this text here. That is what Paul is saying. If Christ is not raised, then the eyewitness accounts of the apostles that led to this first century creed that was repeated and that is the foundation of the hope of so many Christians from the first century up until now that Christ was crucified according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures and raised the third day according to the scriptures. If Christ was not raised, this is not true. And you can throw this thing in the trash if Christ was not raised. <laughs> that's, that's an obvious, but if Christ is not raised why would you want it if Christ isn't raised it means nothing your faith, my preaching our study of God's word is but a vain and foolish thing that's right. as atheists that's right. say it is Paul says in verse 15 we are found to be false witnesses of God if the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ are found under the scrutiny of their own testimony to be false witnesses, the Bible that I hold in my hand today is not worth the paper it's printed on. It's certainly not worth this calfskin cover that it's bound in. If Christ is not raised, then it's all vanity. Not only is the Bible not what claims to be if Christ is not raised but the blood that the martyrs shed for the faith as St. Peter and St. Andrew embraced the cross if Christ is not raised they did so in vain St. John was boiled in a vat of oil if, he, if Christ is not raised his suffering was in vain if Christ is not raised then as Paul was beheaded for the testimony of Christ Jesus, his faith was in vain, and his body is rotten in the ground. Paul repeats, If the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised. Verse 16. However bad this looks now, however much despair, the very thought of this, because I just want to make this clear that this is not true. What I'm saying is not true. Right? What I'm saying is not true. Christ is raised, but indulge me just for a second. That's what Paul was doing. He's just doing what Paul was doing. Indulge me just for a moment. If the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised. However bad this looks now, however much despair you're in now, if there's no resurrection, it gets worse. It gets much worse. Amen. For you and for me. If Christ is not raised, not only is your faith vanity, but verse 17, you are still in your sins. If Christ is not raised, we have no atonement. If Christ is not raised according to the scriptures, then he remains dead. If Christ is not raised, he does not now ever live to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 If Christ is not raised, he is not with the Father. If Christ is not with the Father, we have no high priest over the house of God. 
Hebrews 10.21. We have no advocate with the Father. 1 John 2.1. If Christ is not raised, we have no hope. This is Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 15. This is his defense for the resurrection and against those who would deny it. If the dead don't rise, Christ is not risen, and there is no forgiveness of sins. Does it get any worse than that? Does it? No. Absolutely, it does. If Christ is not raised, if the dead don't rise, or if Christ is not raised, the dead don't rise. If the dead don't rise, Christ is not raised. Period. End of discussion. If the dead don't rise, that means Christ is not raised. And we can go home because what we're doing here today is foolish. How many of you have lost loved ones and you're recounting on seeing them again? You're recounting on them being absent from the body and present with the Lord. If Christ is not risen, they are not seated with him in glory. They which are fallen asleep, Paul says in verse 18, those that have fallen asleep are perished. They have passed on as believers in Christ, they are perished. You see, if the dead don't rise, the Apostle John was a false witness when he wrote that whoso believeth in the Son shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If there is no resurrection from the dead, that claim is not true. Paul says this much in verse 15. If in this life only, verse 19, we have hope in Christ, we are for all men most miserable. If the promises of God about eternal life and never tasting death weren't true of Christ, they're not true of you. If they're not true of you, they weren't true of Christ. Our hope is not in this life, saints, but in the life to come, in the life to come. Whatever man can do with you, it is nothing. Whatever man can do to you. It is nothing. The only thing that man can do to you is send you to be with Jesus. Amen. That is the worst, the worst thing that man can do to you is the best thing that could ever happen to you. Amen. Think about that. Amen. Here's where the apologetic for hope kicks in. The worst thing that you could ever think, no matter how gruesome a death you think that you could die, the worst thing that it could do would send you to be with your Savior. Amen. That's good news. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. The worst thing that can happen to me is I can fall dead right here at this pulpit and go meet Jesus. Amen. That's pretty good. I mean, if that's the worst thing that can happen to me, you, you know, I, you know, my grandpa used to say all the time, you know, I'd get a, get a splinter or I'd stub my toe or something and I'd be all bent out of shape about it. And he'd say, oh boy, if that's the worst thing happened to you, you'd be just fine. Well, think about it. The worst thing that can happen to somebody that doesn't know God is they die without the chance to know God and they go to and they split hell wide open and they have no hope. The worst thing that can happen to a believer is the best thing they can ever hope for. They get to go see Jesus. So there's no fear. There's no fear. If in this life only we have hope in Christ. We're of all men most miserable. But our hope is eternal life. In eternal life. Verse 20. But. 
Verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. But now Christ is risen from the dead. I personally love, long, and look for these buts in Scripture. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy. Just after he goes through the first three verses talking about our depraved state in the sinfulness of this world and walking around in the death of the flesh we're without hope and then verse 4 he says but God being rich in mercy according to the great love with which he loved us Amen. has raised us together with Christ and seated us with Christ in heavenly places now we see this but but now is Christ risen all doubt is taken off the table now. But now is Christ risen. Not only is Christ risen saints, listen to this. Hear this well. And become the first fruits of them that slept. If you fall asleep in Christ, you will rise again, just as he died and rose again. Amen. Paul roots this in Christ's true humanity. For since by death, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For, it is, for in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. This is where the promise gets deeply theological. Paul roots this in the humanity of Christ. And we see throughout Scripture this Adam and Christ Parallel. I think of Romans 5. We're dead in Adam. We're made alive in Christ. Amen. The first Adam brought us what only Adam could give us, corruption and the death of the flesh. But the second Adam, the true and better Adam, the man Christ Jesus, gives what only the sinless Son of God could give. He brings us life. Life not only for himself, but for all of those who are united to him in his death, burial, and resurrection. We saw a dear young sister get baptized today into the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Amen. She now has this blessed hope as her hope. She will rise again with Christ. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall put down, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ was indeed raised bodily this day as we celebrate over 2,000 years ago. He was raised bodily. And in his second coming, Scripture gives us the promise that we too shall rise. 
and we will meet the Lord in the air. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we shall, we shall meet them in the air, and ever shall we be with the Lord. Christ will return, having been declared to be the Son of God with power. He will return and consummate his kingdom. Scripture is very clear. He is ruling and reigning now. For he must reign until all enemies be put under his feet. Psalm 110.1 The Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for your feet. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. And I want you to know this. Some parting thoughts. Death is not an enemy that Christ has left his people to defeat. We don't have to defeat death. Christ defeats death. Christ has defeated death. Christ is defeating death. And at the last day, Christ will defeat death once and for all. And all things will be over his, under his feet. And he will deliver the kingdom of God up as a completed work to the Father. And he will set down that God might be all in all. And we with Christ, the Lamb in the midst of us, giving light to every man, shall worship in spirit and truth forever in a land where there is no darkness, where there is no sin. For this reason, the apostles could be martyred for their faith. St. Andrew and St. Peter could joyfully embrace their respective crosses. John can embrace that vat of oil. Paul can lay his neck out to be beheaded with joy in his heart. The author of this text today found strength in this promise to endure the beasts at Ephesus, he says in verse 32. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what does it advantage me if the dead rise not? Let us eat drink for on tomorrow we die but Paul could embrace his beheading with joy in his heart because he knew he would rise again this world has nothing to take from you those of us even those of us even those who would take our lives cannot take the life to come nor take us from the hand of Christ Romans 8, 35 through 39. Because the dead do indeed rise, Paul says. Christ is risen indeed. Rejoice, Christian. Ye too shall rise. I want to read as we part and as we close. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 55. Behold, I shew you a mystery. We, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, 
Where is thy victory? Christ defeated death at his resurrection. Amen. And because he defeated death at his resurrection, you will defeat death in your eternal life, and you will be raised bodily to be with Christ forever and everlasting. Thank you. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths. Lord, that wherever it is that you ask us to go, whatever it is you ask us to do, whatever it is we must endure, Father, for thy name's sake, we can endure all things with this blessed hope. We shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we shall ever be with the Lord. This world has nothing to take from us. Because all is ours in Christ. We can live now a life that is pleasing to you and a life that runs headlong after you because we know that we have nothing to lose and the kingdom of heaven to gain. Father, I pray that this blessed hope would be a reality for each of those sitting here today. And if any man, woman, boy, or girl does not know you today, does not know with a certainty that this hope is theirs, I pray that in faith they would take Christ this morning as he is offered in the scriptures. I pray that, that today that Christ has been made much of and all but Christ will be forgotten. Father, I ask you to bless our time of fellowship and our joyful rejoicing in the resurrection of Christ and an earnest expectation for the life to come as we are raised with Christ in the corruption. I ask this.